Hey there, everyone. This is Andrew Fulton, your host of the Rigway Podcast. This episode is going to be really great. We will be talking with Rig Rope Access IRATA trainer, Paul Traconia, who has a really interesting and diversified background, not only in rope access, but in the Las Vegas entertainment industry as well. Before we start the conversation with Paul, we want to thank everyone for listening to episode seven. We hope you enjoyed that conversation between Jason and I, and thanks everyone for subscribing to the podcast. To the contractors that are listening, Rig Rope Access is an IRATA operating and training company. IRATA is the Industrial Rope Access Trade Association, and I'm going to share with you IRATA's aims and objectives from their website. So here they are. To be the leading worldwide organization for rope access. Promote and maintain high standards, safety, work quality, and working practices for the industrial rope access industry. Dedicated to improving best practices for individuals working in rope access. Promoting continual improvement in the education and training aspects of rope access. And increasing awareness of the advantages of rope access over alternative access methods. So there you have it. Those aims and objectives are why RIG is an IRATA operations and an IRATA training company. IRATA is the highest standard in the rope access industry, and that is definitely the RIG way. All right, Paul, thanks for your time this morning. I definitely appreciate you joining us for episode eight of the Rigway podcast. Good to be here, mate. All right, let's jump into it. And uh, I'm going to ask you right out of the gate, where are you from? I'm from Australia, as you can probably tell by the accent. Okay. What brought you to Las Vegas? Uh, just some work that uh, my wife and I, we got an opportunity to take a contract here. So that, that's what brought us here to sunny Vegas. All right. Well, that's interesting. And I know that that'll be a fun topic to talk about in part three of the podcast, what you do here in Vegas, aside from working in the rope access industry. So how did you get into rope access? And you started in Australia doing it, I presume? Yeah, I did. I started in 2006. Um, fairly, fairly long time ago now at this point. And um, I was working in the entertainment industry in Australia and got involved with rigging and rope access. So in Australia, rigging falls under a, um, it, there's a like our version of um, OSHA, uh, which is called um, work cover. And you have to take a rigging certification to be able to set up any kind of semi-permanent structures. And Good. so I was involved in that. And nice. then uh, rope access was a natural kind of progression from that. Okay. So 2006. So we're coming up on, you've been in the business for 17 years. In one way or another, yeah. In one way or another. Now down there, were you working throughout the country? Because um, there's a lot of big cities in Australia. Or are you working mainly in the Sydney area? Uh, so I, I'm from Sydney, so I was working in Sydney for a little bit. I've worked in Queensland, which is a, a more northern state. And I've worked in Perth, which is where there's a lot of um, gas gas work. I've worked overseas in um, different countries, like in Southeast Asia. Wow. Uh, yeah, so I've, I've, done a, I've done a little bit around Australia, but not, um, not extensively. I've also worked a little bit in North America, in uh, Canada, and yeah. Okay, very interesting. So down there in Australia, is rope access really prevalent? Because in the United States, you know, a lot of contractors still don't, they don't know about it. Yeah, I definitely think in, in 2006, when I, took the, um, when I took the original level one 
certification. I didn't really know what it was and it was hard to describe to people. But as the years went on, you kind of see a lot of people around, especially around town, um, doing what's called commercial work where you'll see people hanging off the side of buildings and either doing uh, cleaning glass or doing building maintenance, which is um, painting or silicon sealing or um, rendering or anything like that. And it's far more common in Australia than what it is here. That's definitely something that I noticed. Um, and I've, I've been around a lot of, lot of cities in the States and you would have thought that in something like New York City, where there's so many high rises, that it would be popular, but it's it's just not. And I think it has something to do with the uh, the way that trade unions work here in the states. We don't have the same uh, structure that you guys have. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We've uh, definitely discussed that, you know, on developing strategies to develop work because the big thing is educating. I call it educating the money. And mm -hmm. so that would be contractors or building owners, and oftentimes they don't know about the option of rope access. They don't really understand how the work would get done. Um, and so it's often just getting that opportunity here to get a few minutes of people's times and, and show them. And it's like, wow, you know, this is a very efficient way to do your work, mm -hmm. you know? So in the entertainment industry in Australia, that's very interesting because that's what this town is. A ton of work is on ropes in Las Vegas. I wouldn't really call it rope access because it's people who are trained in it, but there's no structure, all right? And that's what makes rope access safe, right? There's a plan for the procedures and implementations and there's a safety supervisor and all that. In Australia, is it, so here it's a little more cowboy, all right? Down there in Australia, is it a little more, is it tighter? I think it depends on the industry because you've okay. got you've got a bunch of different categories. You've got uh, heavy industry, which is uh, oil and gas. You've got commercial work, which is people working around town on some kind of building maintenance. You've got the entertainment industry, which has its own kind of protocols and procedures and ways that they can like look after things. Yeah. And then you've got um, you could what you could call the rescue side of it, where they're operating once again on totally different procedures that might not be as relevant for heavy industry or might not be relevant for the entertainment industry. So each uh, section kind of governs itself in a way and sometimes there's crossover but a lot of times there isn't and depending on who's um, what what uh, the let's say exposure of the job is if you're working in the commercial industry you might be getting away with some stuff that you would consider cowboy but if you're on a very exposed job meaning many people can see what you're doing work cover which is our OSHA can see uh, uh, what you're doing then you're going to be far more stringent with your guidelines, but if it's not, and it's just a, what do you call like a three man band, which yeah. is just a bunch of dudes getting together and yeah. cleaning windows, they're probably a lot more loose with their protocols. All right. Yep. Yeah. Uh, fair enough. That's probably a lot of how it is here too. So your OSHA is called work cover there. Work cover. Yeah. Work cover. Are those individuals that work for that organization, are they trained in what rope access is? Uh, I've, it's been a while since I've actually worked in Australia and done rope access in Australia to, to that kind of level. Um, and I would say that it's gotten a lot better now than what it was when I first got into the industry. But it is, once again, OSHA, OSHA here, my understanding is that it's, it's governing a lot of different trades and rope access is a very new trade yeah. uh, or, well, a new category i wouldn't really call it a trade because it's more a method of access you know it's in For the sure. name yeah. um and so the work cover in australia has definitely been more involved with regulating what is uh what 
rope access can and can't do in the more recent years as it becomes more popular because in the beginning they didn't even know what what was happening and there were no standards to kind of guide what we were yeah that's um very interesting because in the united states osha being the overseeing group for safety right um rope access is so new that they don't really know how to look at it so it's up for the companies such as rig and clients that we do work for to be able to have these operating procedures documented in such a way that they can look at it and understand it you know so it's really a communication um issue i always see because it's such a safe way to do work Mm -hmm. you know but when you look up at guys hanging over the edge of a building on ropes you're just like whoa you know what is happening right here so you know it's always exciting to be in part of an emerging industry in my mind you know which it's still in las vegas for sure and in the united states so what has been your favorite type of rope access to do when you were a tech out there working um that you were like yeah that's a cool job i'm like to be a part of it uh, there's, there's been a lot of stuff in the entertainment industry. I worked for a company that used to set up stunts for the amazing race. So oh. there was a lot of like really interesting rope access stuff that we did there. Nice. And then in the same company, it was kind of well known. It's called innovate access in Australia. And, um, they were really well known for doing uh, more technical rigging jobs that, um, required different pieces of equipment, like uh, motorized, uh, rope, rope motors and, uh, a-frames, uh, Rock Exotica, um, cool. Vortex A-frame, things like that. So we had a lot of um, opportunity to use techniques that a lot of typical rope access would not be using. And that was just to, you know, pull a massive marble uh, table up the side of a building or nice. suspend nets on uh, a really, it was really, really exposed job in um, uh, the uh, the harbour in um in Australia, right next to the uh, Sydney Harbour Bridge and the Opera House, which is like the iconic yeah. kind of, um, oh yeah, it's like a shell-shaped structure. Yeah, and we did a job right next to that, and so we had to be like really dialed in on point uh, on yeah. what we were doing, just to make sure we didn't drop anything on anybody, and yeah, you know, make a disaster. Yeah, that's a cool high-profile job. You yeah. know, I mean, it's that's an iconic landmark globally. Yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, anybody exactly. sees most people. You see that picture. You know, that's Sydney Opera House in yeah. Australia. So that's pretty awesome. So, what do you like best about working in rope access? Uh, I'm I'm really uh, technically minded in terms of uh, the way I operate, and I really like getting getting certain things um, in the most efficient way uh, possible. And sometimes you can use techniques that uh, are not commonly used in one area of the industry and pull from pull from a different area of the industry and so it's using using those techniques to kind of solve problems that's the thing that kind of gets me the most excited i would say personally for me doing the more um repetitive tasks are a bit more challenging in terms of my interest level that's for sure okay that's great that's great yeah i love blended jobs where you can just take all these different techniques and utilize them to accomplish, you know, a a technical project. And Mm -hmm. that's one of the things that makes rig a really good company for contractors is one, we got this unique background of entertainment rigging, which in the entertainment rigging industry, you're always having to pull a rabbit out of the hat, you know, to like solve this, solve that, you know, and oh, by the ways and, um, time is of the essence, you know, because the clock is ticking and the doors are going to open. It's like, man, this has to get done. So it's always fun when you get the opportunity to 
pull cool jobs off like that. It's always best when you get to do great planning way to begin with. So how did you get into rope access? How did, how did that start? I mean, you started 17 years ago almost, but who drew you into this? What did you see that like, man, this is a cool job? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I was working in the entertainment industry at the time and um, I had read about it uh, or I'd seen it. It's a long time ago, so I'm, I'm struggling to remember, honestly. And the <laughs> okay. very first, the course that I took was actually in a climbing gym. And if oh. memory serves me, there wasn't actually a legitimate training center in Sydney at the time. Wow. Um, there might have been one in Perth, but it was one of the first major like training courses and it was being run out of a climbing gym and there was like, you know, five dudes there and we were all we had to like finish by a certain time so that the gym could yeah, still run. So for sure. I can't I can't exactly remember what, what drew me to it in the first in the first place, but it was because I was using techniques, uh, rigging techniques and I just wanted to understand more about things that I could and could not do. Oh, I get it. I totally get it. So for young people that are looking for an exciting and challenging career that can take them to really cool places, do you recommend rope access as a good career path? Yeah, I think honestly, rope access has gotten a lot bigger now. My, my errata number is 18305, um, which means like I'm the 18,305th technician, right? And I think at this point, we're like going over 200,000. So wow. there's 200,000 rope access technicians around the world, something wow. like that. I don't, I don't know what it is like wow. right now of this minute. Wow. But um, there's a lot, there's a lot of people out there and there's a lot more work than when I first started. Wow. And you have opportunities to work in sometimes like fairly hazardous environments, which, which for some people can be like really cool and interesting. And um, you get to work, you know, around the world because IRADA is many different countries have their own version of rope access. So there's SPRAT, which is the North American version. And then in Australia, we have one called ARAA, which is our version. I believe um, there's some in, there might be one in Brazil and there's, you know, there's other ones around the world. So I'm not going to embarrass myself by saying all of the ones that I don't know, <laughs> but okay. there are other versions. But IRADA is the only one that is um, recognized around the world for um, legitimacy of being able to uh, perform the techniques in the best possible way. I absolutely love that. So... You heard that, people. Uh, Paul is recommending that rope access is a growing industry, and it's something that uh, you should add to your repertoire of skills if you work in the entertainment industry or construction and you like working at heights. So I always like to wrap up with one last question from an expert such as yourself that's been doing the job for a long time. What advice would you give a young person starting out a career in rope access? Just simple nugget of wisdom. I think one of the really important things is to actually understand that uh, rope access is a, is a method of access. So it's the way that you get to the job. So understanding how to perform techniques and get safely to the job is one part of it, but then also having a trade and understanding that what you're doing on ropes is a, is a totally separate component. And sometimes um, people don't appreciate and they think that as soon as I get a rope access ticket, then everybody's going to want to hire me. But have, usually having some kind of other trade can really be helpful as well in terms of finding work and it just makes you more well-rounded in, in terms of being uh, beneficial for a company to, um, to hire. True, very, very true. That's one thing I tell all the young people coming through the training center, what's your trade? And the younger they are, the better opportunity they have at setting themselves mm -hmm. up for success, be it a painter, electrician, a welder, a plumber, a pipe fitter, whatever. Rope access is a way to get up there. Well, that was an awesome part 
of uh, part one of our conversation with Paul, you guys. So, so awesome to hear his story of how he got into the industry. Up next, we're going to talk about Paul's background as an IRATA trainer and how that part of his career came to be. All right, everyone, we're going to keep this fun conversation with Paul cruising along. So, Paul, you're one of our IRATA trainers. How did you find RIG? Uh, so when I, uh, every three years, you have to recertify your um, your level, whatever you are. So I was level three and it was time for my recertification. I was here in Vegas and I reached out to you guys and got on one of the courses. And then in being on the course and resitting, I was chatting to chatting to Bob and some of the other people um, there. And I said, look, I've got uh, training experience. I've done this for a while and you guys were looking for someone and just, uh, just, just worked out right time, right place. Awesome. Yeah, we, we were absolutely thrilled. I know Bob was just over the moon. <laughs> you know, you live in Vegas too. Okay, this is really, really great. So how long have you been training? Uh, I've been doing uh, IRATA training uh, since 2010, I believe. That wow. was 2010, wow. 2011. No, 2010 is when I started. Okay. You've been a level three for a long time. Uh, yes, around about the same time, I actually paused for a little while on in level two, and that um, uh, I didn't I didn't go up to level three as fast as what I should have. But I've been in level three since ten or eleven, something like that. Okay, yeah. all right. At what point in your rope access career did you decide you wanted to become an instructor and start doing that part of the job for work? Like I said, around around two thousand ten, I've always. Um, I've always been attracted to doing training and coaching. I really like that side of it and mm -hmm. um, trying to get detailed on on how to set up people in the right way so that they can learn whatever skill it is, be it rope access or other stuff. Um, and so I think that uh, I got an opportunity to, to meet a couple of really interesting people along the way and they've taught me some great stuff. But yeah, I've, I've always been attracted to training. Okay. Did you have a mentor that helped you through this process? Because it is important to have somebody that can kind of, you know, bring you along and we all develop our own style, but it's really important to have when you become an instructor, because there's a lot difference between somebody working on ropes and somebody who's teaching how to work on ropes. Mm -hmm. So learning to be a teacher is a little different. So did you have a person like that, that you could look to that helped you along? Yeah, the guy that uh, I, I worked for and was essentially, I would consider him a, a mentor in rope access was Lee Greenwood. And he was the owner of owner and operator of um, Fifth Point in Australia. And uh, at one point, I believe he was the training chairman of IRATA. Wow. And I got the same same kind of thing as what happened here. I was I was taking my level two or, or level three. Again, it's, it's been a while, so I can't specifically remember. But I was taking my, my resetting a course and um, I expressed interest in training because I was interested in that kind of stuff. And he said, look, you can come in. And he, he needed somebody at that time. And it was, again, right, right time, right place. And um, I, was, I was there for a number of years off and on. And then um, I worked for another company uh, in Canada and I taught for them for a little while. And then separate from that, I've also taught some uh, wilderness rescue stuff in Australia as well. Oh, wow, cool. Um, and that's, that's been really interesting. But if I was to pick one mentor, I'd, I would say it was Lee. Lee's um, definitely, definitely at the time, he was the person who knew more than anybody else in terms of training in, in uh, Australia, from what I could tell. And he had a really good structure, and I learned a lot of um, a lot of stuff that I still bring into training today. It comes from stuff that I learned from him. Wow, his IRATA number must be pretty low. Yeah, I don't know what it is, but it's definitely <laughs> it's definitely low. 
that's awesome. What are the things that you like uh, teaching about rope access? I mean, you know, what are some things you're just like, man, this is this is my jam. Yeah. So I I I believe that everybody kind of goes through this cycle. And when I was when I was starting, I was really interested in like teaching the the best way to tie a knot, or what this mechanical advantage system was, or you know how to do this maneuver with the least amount of steps. And I've got this kind of saying, if like, if you have to do seven things and I have to do three things, I'm, I'm going to be more efficient than you, right? So trying to be a little bit more efficient. But actually that. what ultimately um, was the thing that created the most interest for me was communication between um, the level three and the people that they're working for, because I think that that's sorely lacking inside an IRATA um, program because we teach maneuvers and we don't really teach about how to deal with interpersonal conflict, how to do good decision making, how to um, communicate within a team, how to create a culture that works well, and um, how to look at a job from a kind of systems perspective and see what things are potentially going to go wrong ahead of time. Not so much in ter not so much in terms of like a safety aspect, but like how can we make this job more efficient, or what are the things that are going to trip us up in in uh, in maybe damaging some equipment or getting people in a place that isn't going to be the best. We don't really we don't really have a structure to teach that inside IRATA, um, be it level one, two, or three. And so that's the stuff that I've found makes the most difference. Like if you if you do if you are doing a rescue in real life, you've probably messed up significantly in terms of your planning and procedures. For sure. But that's the thing that we focus the most on in training. All of it is based around especially once you get to a level three, you're working about how to get people out of a certain um, situation that they might have um, put themselves into, or you're doing a team rescue, but it's all based around repairing something that has gone wrong rather than attempting to get it right in the first place, which um, it's, it's more of a philo philosophical kind of change, I think. Oh, I absolutely love what you just said. You nailed it. And I, what you said, uh, if you have to do seven things to do, a task and I can do it in three. I'm just going to move along a little quicker than you. And that is something, of course, that, you know, we're teaching the techniques of how to do a specific skill. As soon as you have to apply that in the real world to work, that's a whole different program, you know, and I think that's where really good management really comes into play. Um, yeah, and that's awesome because you're an excellent trainer because you had a deep background of working in the field. And so you realize and you're trying to share it with the individuals taking these courses like, hey, here's the bigger picture. This is why you actually do it this way because someday you're going to be in this situation and this is what you're going to encounter. And you're going to come back to like, oh, this was a simple way to do that instead of doing it nine steps, you know. So that's pretty awesome, man. I bet you get a lot of satisfaction from your students who you see just have, you know, the light bulbs go off and then you maybe even see some guys you taught a long time ago whose careers are like, this is their career. Yeah, that is, I mean, like that's that's one of the things that if you, if you truly enjoy training and coaching, that's one of the things that really gets, um, gets you going, I, I think, is seeing people improve. Uh, if you're not interested in seeing people improve, then you probably shouldn't be a trainer, honestly. For sure. um, but I do have, uh, I've got a friend that, I didn't train him directly, but I introduced him to rope access and rigging and things like that. And he is just about to go to Grimp Day, which is an international rescue competition that's, wow. um, it, it, they've held it here in the US, but uh, this year it's gonna be in Belgium. Cool. And he's going there and that's kind of exciting to see him go from like not knowing anything about 
like how do we even tie a knot to now going to a very, very well-recognized competition to perform rescue techniques. So that's pretty cool. That's awesome. Yeah, I love teaching. I love sharing information. I'm, I'm a people person. And I think to be an instructor, one of the things that dawned on me years ago, because I used to work as a climbing guide, and uh, you have to like people. You know, it has to be a part of your your just makeup because it has to be more than just doing the job. Like, oh, I like going out and, and rigging or I like just rock climbing. But yeah, I make money and I take these people along with me. And ah, man, it has to be more of like, man, I really enjoy taking people to the next level. It's so great. And I'm sharing with them what I'm passionate about. And that really carries over. People can, that's reflected in, in a teacher. You know, it's, it's really important. And uh, I can tell that, and through watching you, that you enjoy that. And, you know, there's nothing better than seeing somebody you worked with really take their career to the next level. And this guy who's going to an international competition for rope access rescue, that's, that's definitely impressive. Do you have a favorite skill or a maneuver that you like teaching through the week when you guys, you know, are in charge of a class and do you like level ones, level two, level three days, you know, what's your jam? Each level has its own kind of pros and cons and things that you want to um, impart, the knowledge that you want to impart. Obviously with level ones, you're kind of teaching the foundational knowledge. So I find that the stuff that you teach level ones is is what they will carry out into the workforce. And then when they come back in three years time and they do their level two, how much of that sticks can sometimes depend on how good the trainer is versus, you know, what bad habits they pick up along the way. And then level two is the, in, the interesting stuff is like, it's a very, very big jump from a level one to a level two because you introduced to a lot more techniques. And then from a level three point of view, teaching teaching how to be more efficient and trying to teach more big picture stuff is is really interesting but uh each there isn't there isn't a specific maneuver because i actually see a lot of the maneuvers as being very similar to each other um because ultimately all you're doing is you're going up and down ropes and then you're changing from going up to down Mm -hmm. and if you can master those three skills uh a lot of the time you can you can cover a lot of your you can cover a lot of the maneuvers that you need to do just by those those three things for sure for sure you know, we have a, a young guy who just got his level one last week who works for RIG, Christopher. And uh, it, it was a big week for him. I'm really proud of this young kid. He's 19. You know, he works at the shop over there helping Chad. And, and uh, you know, physically rope access in the beginning. You're not used to what is happening up and down and, and how to connect the legs to the upper body using the core. And... Uh, so it was great. I asked him on, uh, I think it was his third day. I said, man, how, how are you doing? Christopher, he's like, oh, good, man. It's, it's really awesome, Andrew. He goes, day one, it was really hard, man. I was really using my upper body. But then day two, I just figured out how to use my legs. <laughs> I was like, yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. So it was funny. It was neat seeing a little light bulb click for, for young Christopher. So for rope access techs that are thinking about becoming trainers and instructors, what's the path? How do you start? I don't know if there's specifically a path like laid out, but yeah, first of all, you have to be really, really interested in the techniques and really interested in, in my opinion, being a trainer is not just a job that you should do. It's not like saying like, okay, well, I, I want to get some work. I'll just be a trainer. In my opinion, you really need to like wanting to impart knowledge. And if you're, if you want to impart knowledge onto people what you need to know is more than what you are delivering so if i'm delivering you know 
two units of information, I want to know 10 units so that I'm far, far and above what it is that I'm explaining to people. That means that if somebody asks you questions, you're going to be able to answer from a broader um, perspective. And I think that if you are interested in becoming a trainer, you have to learn more than just, you know, these are the maneuvers. You have to start to understand what are the RADA guidelines. You have to start understand equipment, um, uh, ways to inspect that are deeper than just looking at the device and saying like, oh, well, this looks fine to me. You have to start understand pulley systems and uh, complicated rigging stuff. And something else that I think is like what I said earlier is a little bit sorely missed is how to teach decision making and how to teach uh, planning and briefing. Briefing is a really important one because um, you're, if you're a level three, you're going to be briefing jobs multiple times um, throughout your career. And um, I think those are the skills that you have to kind of learn more about. And, you know, I just uh, a regular writer course isn't going to do that. You're going to have to spend time outside of just the regular maneuvers to research this stuff. And I've spent a, a bunch of money on learning more about rope rope related techniques that isn't irata specific, you know, their wilderness rescue or um, certain rigging things. And you want to understand more than, again, you want to understand more than what you're teaching. So it just uh, enables you to answer questions and uh, tie things together. I absolutely love that, dude. You just nailed that. That is exactly where when you want to start teaching, going from doing your job to teaching how to do the job and you're teaching two aspects of it you have to know 10 aspects of it that was really really well put and uh man our listeners know uh know that's true because you just resonated that that is the way to become a trainer so that was awesome and i appreciate all your insight on the process super great stuff and Friends, uh, that was an awesome part too. That, that was just really great. We just uh, had an awesome part of that conversation. So great that Paul shared all this beneficial information with us. So um, we're going to launch into part three. And uh, as everybody knows, we love to give a shout out to our incredible partner in all things rope access equipment, that being Petzl. Rig Rope Access is a Petzl technical partner, and we love promoting their company. Petzl's has a series of how-to videos on their YouTube channel created for work at height professionals filmed at the Petzl Technical Institute in Salt Lake City. These informational videos provide an overview on best practices, technical considerations, common applications for some of Petzl's most popular products. New videos are frequently uploaded, so be sure to subscribe to their channel at youtube.com forward slash Petzl professional videos. That right there, friends, is why Rig Rope Access is a Petzl technical partner. Petzl's an unparalleled leader in the work at height industry, and they're such a fantastic company to be aligned with. Rig loves Petzl. All right, friends, this is part three of the Rigway podcast, one of my favorite parts of the show where we get to really talk with our guests about their uniqueness and maybe uh, what they do outside of their specific trade. Um, Paul, we asked you earlier how you ended up in Las Vegas. And why don't you tell us uh, what brought you here to uh, the Strip? Well, outside of training IRADA and rope access stuff, I am also a circus performer. And wow. so I've been doing that for even longer than I've been doing rope access. Probably wow. 2000, 2003 was when I started. And uh, I'm working one of the shows on the Strip, which is called Absinthe. They're oh, based at Caesars Palace. Yep. All right. So... Did you guys see that this uh, act was available? How do they 
put did they put these acts out how do you get a job like that? Yeah, so specific to your act. Usually, so an act is a um, an act is a, a short unit of time, so like four to five minutes, something like that. And you either perform by yourself or with other people, and that's kind of like a product. And so shows will want to buy that product so that they can put it inside the show and then keep it as a a block that they use to kind of entertain people. So if anybody's seen any circus show all of the different things that come on, those are all called acts. So my wife and I, we do an act that's uh, duo trapeze where I hang upside down and I kind of like flip her and then catch her. And that's the kind of thing that we do. So uh, in terms of in terms of coming to Absinthe, uh, prior to the pandemic, uh, we had um, been in talks with uh, coming. This guy had come and seen us. We'd worked mainly in Europe before that. And we did a um, we did a competition in Europe that's like fairly well recognized. And after that, he kind of reached out to us and said, "We want to have you at the show." And yeah, and then then the pandemic happened. And <laughs> <laughs> the pandemic happened. Where did you guys get uh, locked down at? Yeah. So during as the pandemic was happening, we were stuck in a, a ship that was just off the coast of Dubai, and wow. we were there for about a month um, wow. in a pretty small cabin. Wow. Um, so that was that was interesting. And uh, we were getting like food delivered to us, and we couldn't leave the cabin. Yeah, it was pretty intense. Wow. And then we got sent back to Seattle, where my wife is from, and we spent probably about a year and year and a couple months at in Seattle uh, before. The show here, Absinthe, opened up enough to have our act. They'd been open earlier, but um, because we do an aerial act, it was difficult to kind of, with the guidelines at the time, to have us in the show. Hmm. Very, very interesting. So to circle back to you've been doing uh, acrobatics since 2013, and were you a gymnast? Yeah, I, I was a competitive gymnast in Australia, which is not really saying much. Australia is not really known for their uh, gymnastic talents. Um, they're mostly known for cricket and football and things like that. So I did gymnastics. And then uh, after high school, I traveled around um, the US and, and Europe. I met some people who were into circus. I picked it up quickly because I'd done gymnastics. And then yeah. one thing led to another until I'm like, oh, I guess, I guess I'm not going to university and I'm... I'm <laughs> wearing tights for a living i love it i love it uh trevor ran away with the circus too you know and that's uh a fun thing i love that was a part of his podcast conversation and with cirque you know mm -hmm. he had that opportunity and just just thought oh this is gonna be great and so you kind of had the same background but as a performer that's great yeah what do you like about performing in front of audiences I think it's the same thing that i like about coaching i really like um the technical aspect and and uh it's interesting there's a there's a saying um from a um an older trapeze guy that I met and it's each, each show is a practice for the public. Ah. And what that means is that you've got every show that you have is a brand new experience for everybody that pays. And you want to try and give everybody who comes to the show an equally good experience than the last show had, which can be challenging sometimes because sometimes the last thing you want to do is like do the act again. And, um, especially like try and give a hundred percent of, you know, uh, emotion or technical prowess or whatever it is to, to an audience. So what I really like is trying to make it such that the, the act is exactly the same every time so that the people who come and see the show, they're seeing an equally good product than you just having an off night and everybody has off nights. But I think the thing that I like the most about it is trying to be exactly the same. I love that. Yeah, I know you got to be stoked every, every performance. You got to keep that up because it's reflected. You know, people can see that. And that's great advice that older gentleman gave you for mm -hmm. sure. No doubt about it. 
Um, I expect that you have a high level of fitness required for doing trapeze. So what do you do to stay fit? Are you hitting the gym regularly? Uh, so the circus is interesting because there, there isn't really a strength and conditioning aspect um, that is unified like it is in sport. So because there's so much money behind the NFL and the NBA, there's strength and conditioning and there's research that's gone into how to perform that that role or do do get to a high level in those disciplines. Whereas in circus, a lot of the time it comes from uh, whatever discipline you came from before. So if you want to, if you were a gymnast, then you're just going to train the same way that you did when you were doing gymnastics. But in reality, circus performing is very different uh, because there isn't a lot of variety in what we do. You're always doing like a four to five minute act that's exactly the same. And then you're training that same act and then you're training new skills that you want to put into that act. You're getting uh, in some ways very imbalanced or you're getting overuse injuries where you're mm. doing literally the same yeah. thing all the time. And so an ideal training program, and this is something that I'm really interested in as well is like the strength and conditioning aspect of circus. And I've spent a lot of time and money and consulted with a bunch of people of how to do it the best because it's not like anything else. You don't have an off season. You're working, you know, five, five times, five times a week, two shows, two shows a day. So you're doing 10 shows a week and that's just kind of indefinite. And especially here in, in Vegas where people have been in the same show for like, you know, 10, 15 years, 20 years. Mm. And that, that toll really builds up. So you have to work out a way to, to balance that. So a lot of it comes down to uh, correcting the potential imbalances that you have when you're um, doing the same thing. You have to train the things that you don't normally do in the act. Uh, and that is also separate to trying to improve at the act in the same time. So in terms of training, there's, it's kind of complicated, but, but a lot of those kind of things are what okay. we do. Yeah, it's really interesting. Over the years, while I was the head rigger for UNLV over there at the Thomas and Mac, we did Ringling Brothers. And it was always my favorite time of year uh, because the elephants come in and all that. It's great. I just love rigging the circus and it's just great people, right? And I always really admired these lifers. I mean, that's what they do. This is their career and they're doing the same things over and over and over. And as a climber, I'm very, very familiar with repetitive motion injuries. And as a rigger too, you know, pulling points, you're just, it's, my elbows are blown. You know what I mean? Um, wrists and stuff like that. And I cannot imagine flying through the air, catching people, having them jerk on your limbs and stuff. It's a, yeah, it's uh some people have the genetics for it for sure. Some people do, but it's, it's not just that it's, it, it's a job like everything else. And I think a lot of the time people don't actually appreciate because I've been on both sides of the, both sides of the industry. I've worked on shows as a rigger and you, you kind of have to, as a performer, you don't really appreciate how hard the rigging staff and the people who are doing yeah, all of the crew work for sure. as well. And you know, like uh, it, it's hard to take that perspective. And if you're a rigger, you don't really appreciate what it's like to be on the other side. And you're like, Oh, these guys are just being like <laughs> pathetic performers. And you're like, well, <laughs> you know, when you've done both, you can understand the challenges that both side have. And in a way they're both doing like very, very repetitive stuff. Yeah. And for a, for a rigger that's watched the same show for like the five, thousandth time and they still have to pay attention and yeah. you know make sure that they're doing the the job as well as they did before it's ex it's exactly the same and i think it'd be i don't know be more beneficial if if more attention was paid to the people that were like supporting the show just as For much sure. as the people who were who are performing in the show yeah behind the curtains there's a lot going on yeah you guys haven't you and your wife working on any new acts or uh right now my wife uh not sorry to put a downer on the things my wife is uh currently injured she's out oh. of the show and oh, okay. the thing that we're working on is getting back and making sure that we're as clear and like ready to to get back and 
doing some stuff that still hasn't really been done on a on a stage in Vegas. So oh, nice. That's a that's a long term goal. We'll see how yeah. we go with that. Well, I hope her recovery is going well. Yeah. Do you see you and your wife? You you guys want to stay here in Vegas? Do you like living here? Yeah, it's good. It's I'm actually surprised. I mean, I'm because I'm from Australia. I I really like the beach. I grew up on the beach, yeah. and uh, not having water around here is definitely a challenge. Oh. But there's actually there's other things about Vegas that you know you're so close to California. There's no other place in the world that has this density of circus performers and yeah. the ability to do this job and and have it be a regular a regular show and be able to have a house and settle is different. I mean, I've been on the road for close to 20 years now yeah. and during the pandemic, actually, this is a kind of like a testament to it. During the pandemic, we were in Seattle from uh, probably April until July. So it's like, whatever that is, like 13, 14 months, something. And that was the longest time I'd been in one place for 15 years. Wow. So yeah, having been a, on the road, yeah, having, having a, a place to stay for a little bit of time is definitely appealing. Well, that's great. And Vegas has a, there's a lot of appeal here. You know, there's a lot of stuff to do. You can get to the beach here pretty quick. You know, four hours, you can be over at the Pacific Ocean, you know. So, um, but this is a great place to live because we can earn a good living here in this town. And I want to tell you, we sure feel lucky to have you as one of our instructors. Um, you know, it's just amazing. You're super valuable uh, to the team, no doubt about it. Um, and it was awesome hearing all about your rope access background, how you got into training, all about your gig on the strip, working absinthe. I still haven't seen that show. I've gone there and worked. Um, I've done recently, there was a rigging inspection that happened over there in the tent and we had to replace a hinge and stuff. And I know it's just a great show. So I'm definitely going to come and see your guys' act when your, your wife is back in it. So that's going to be awesome. So we appreciate you coming to the podcast, Paul. Appreciate your time, buddy. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So friends, thanks for listening to the Rigway podcast. As mentioned earlier, our goal is to educate, inspire, and entertain you for a few minutes of your day, a couple times a month. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any questions, please ask, reach out. We love to share um, on the Rig Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn pages as that's how you can get a hold of us. And to close, remember this, as always, when you're doing things the Rigway, you're definitely doing things the right way.